0: Well, we are fully into spring. I know for some of you, I'm sure spring is your favorite season of the year. Everything is now growing, and it's green and in bloom, and it's warming up. Summer's getting close. School's about to let out. Uh, there's one thing, though, about spring that I, that I don't love, something called yard maintenance. I don't know if you're familiar with the term. Uh, you know, our yard isn't even that big. I'm just bad at it. I'm just bad at taking care of it. Uh, periodically our homeowners association will drive around the neighborhood to do a check to make sure everybody's yards are up to code and when we know they're coming Jennifer always starts getting anxious she's like you think you ought to go trim those bushes back and mow again and I'll say you know I I think it looks good out there and she'll say do you are we how what's the what's the standard the minimum standard Of goodness when it comes to the yard, okay? I think ours is a different definition. My biggest issue, of course, is weeds. And the reason it's a problem for me is I take the shortcut, the easy way out. I just mow over them, right? Because, listen, weeds are green, and if you mow them all, if you mow everything the same length, at least for a few days, it all looks the same from the street. The problem with weeds is this, though, that not only do they grow faster than grass, but they spread fast, and eventually they'll take over the whole yard. And so the frustrating, time-consuming, but necessary thing with weeds is you've got to get down and root them out. You've got to kill them and remove them if you want to have a healthy yard, otherwise they take over, right? Well, y'all, here in Colossians 3, we just read it, you may have seen it, the Apostle Paul begins with specificity, he begins to address Christian behavior, And he deals with issues of sin right here. He gives us a pretty significant list. And I think the point for Paul is very clear, and it's very powerful. That we as Christians, we are not meant to manage sin, to keep it cut short in hopes of keeping it under control. We are meant to root it out and to destroy it, to remove it entirely. Now, the easier thing, of course is just to mow it down and keep it short, to manage it, right? Maybe we do that for the sake of our own conscience and we think we're not all that bad. Maybe we do it to keep up appearances so that you don't think I'm all that bad. That's the easier thing, but Paul is going to show us that a new life in Jesus demands more than that. A new life in Jesus is not just that we are improved in terms of how we manage our sin. That's not what it is to be Christian. We're not just an improved people. We are a new people, and therefore, we put sin to death. Those are his words. So when we look at what we read at the beginning, beginning in verse 5, Paul starts the the paragraph with the word therefore. And I want to give a little recap of what we talked about last week. We were in the first four verses of this chapter last week, which sets the foundation for the rest. Why does Paul say therefore before he launches into the specifics? He wants us to understand why we put sin to death, what the foundation of it all is, and it's very simple. Paul has told us that to be a Christian means that you have died with Christ, verses 1, 2, and 3. You are no longer what you were. The old self has been put to death, and you've been raised up with Christ. You've been given a new life. And so as a result, we are called to continually set our hearts and minds on Him. He is our standard. He is our greatest love, our greatest devotion. He's it. And so as a people who have died to the old and have been made new, we now have a new uh, desire that dictates how we live. We have a new heart. Your whole life is found in Christ. Therefore, look at verse 5 again now, therefore, in light of that reality, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Uh, Paul is saying that we should count or consider our entire lives, your whole life, both inside and out, both seen and unseen, public and private, you consider all of it as dead to sin. That means, y'all, very plainly, that we, we no longer entertain sin the way that we used to. We, we don't give it a place in our lives the way that we used to. And we don't, I mentioned this, we don't just try to do a better job of hiding it away so that we can keep up appearances or salve our conscience. We're not Christians because we've learned how to hide our sins better. No, he says, consider yourself dead to it. Other translations are even more emphatic here. Paul says, put to death, therefore, active verb, put to death, therefore, whatever is of the earthly nature, whatever remains of sin in your life. So y'all, before we get into the specifics, Paul's going to give us a list. But before we get there, we have to recognize the urgency and the seriousness with which he writes these words. Paul is not uh, advocating for just a little bit better version of your old self. He's talking about a seriousness and urgency. We don't view life the same way. We don't view sin the same way. We're new, and therefore we attack sin. We don't coddle it. We root it out. Uh, Y'all, if you knew, if you got a report that there was a malignancy in your body, a cancer growing in your body, you would not shrug your shoulders and go about your day you would put a plan together to attack it, right? To root it out, so that you might be healthy and vibrant, and that you might live. And Paul says we should do no less when it comes to sin. Deal with it urgently and decisively. Now Paul gives us a list. It's not meant to be a complete list. If you can add all of Paul's list together throughout the scripture, even though he gives lists several different times, he never really gives us a comprehensive list, but the point is always the same. Paul wants us to focus on deep root issues of the heart okay, that affect our behavior. The first sin issue in verse 5, he mentions, he says immorality. Not specifically, he's talking about sexual immorality. Look at verse 5 again. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, or lust, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. What's our baseline on this? Uh, Y'all, the Christian sexual ethic is pretty simple, pretty straightforward that God created sex as a good gift within the boundaries and parameters of covenant marriage between a man and a woman. That's our ethic. That's the Bible's prescription. The problem with that is not with God, and so often we want to make the problem with God that the parameters are too tight, too narrow. The problem is with us. We've been getting this wrong from the very beginning. If you walk through the Bible reading plan, we're reading through Genesis. We just got to the halfway point of Genesis in our reading. It is truly disturbing to read about the sexual sins from the very beginning that the Bible records. The Bible is a real book. It tells a real story about real people. We are a mess, and we pervert God's good things when we make them about ourselves. Even from the beginning, that's been the case. So this is not a new problem that Paul's talking about, and it's not a Western problem that's only you know, unique to our culture, and it's not a problem... For the, all the bad people out there, oh, but not for us good people in here. We're okay. Y'all listen. Every last one of us, if you're honest with your own heart, we all bend in the direction of sexual perversion. We pervert the good gift of God. We all do it. Or at least we've all done it. Now, in verse 5, Paul gives us not just one word, but several to encapsulate the idea. It's like he's giving us something under an umbrella here. He mentions immorality, impurity, passion or lust, evil desire. Are we we supposed to parse out the differences between those things? Maybe. We're not going to today. Paul's trying to give a comprehensive view. This is a problem that's larger than just how we might define it. If we define sexual immorality only as adultery, for example, having relations with someone other than your spouse, Well, then we miss the fuller picture of both the external and the internal reality here. When Paul gives us several different words, he's trying to show us that any perversion that gets rooted in the human heart is, it falls under that same umbrella. So it could be adultery, it is, but it's also lust, it's pornography, it's sexual abuse, we could go on. Anything that corrupts God's good purpose for human sexuality, Paul says, It all falls under that same umbrella. It all qualifies as sin. We shouldn't parse it out and try to make some better or worse than others. It's all the same in that regard. Paul even throws in the word greed right there, which seems kind of out of place. He says, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. I don't think Paul's talking about material wealth and money here. That's so often how we take greed to mean it. It's about money. It's about material things. But listen, greed, sexual immorality is a form of greed, it is wanting something from someone at their expense without a covenant commitment beforehand it's taking it's seeking gratification in a cheap and selfish way therefore paul says it amounts to idolatry listen sexual immorality at its root is an idolatry of the self it's worship of the self rather than worship of god it's not victimless it's not harmless it is idolatry, Paul says. And he doesn't mince words about the seriousness of it. You look at verse 6. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you once also walked when you were living in them. Um, these are always fun for, for preachers to preach when we get to God's wrath. Oh, my goodness. This is, there's no cute, cuddly way around all this, okay? But let's just preach what the Word says. The wrath of God... What is the wrath of God? It is the settled, righteous anger of God towards sin. And wrath makes us very uncomfortable. We don't like to think of God that way so often. But he wouldn't be God if he didn't have this quality about him. If God does not have a settled, righteous anger towards sin and evil, then he's not worth worshiping because then evil gets a free pass. None of us would want that. But Paul says that the wrath of God, the settled anger of of God toward sin, it comes upon the sexually immoral. God will judge those who are deviant when it comes to his prescription for human sexuality, his design. The wrath will come upon the sons of disobedience. Who are those people? Well, those are just simply people who reject God's righteousness in favor of our own desires. Okay? That's not, again, not a special group of people who live out there anyone who rejects the righteousness of God in favor of their own base desires. The wrath of God is reserved for such people. Now, y'all, nobody likes this message. This makes me squirm to preach it. I'll just be honest with you. Because there's a part of me, I want you to like me. And this is not how you get there. I know that. But this is what the scripture says. And the whole premise within our culture that pushes back against this says, God is wrong for making this so narrow. God is wrong for putting these boundaries around us. In our culture, what we believe is that human sexuality is the greatest form of self-expression. It is the very basis of your identity. We call it identity. We don't like the words orientation. We don't like to think of it as a part of your life. It is your life, your sexuality. And therefore, you and I, we should be abundantly free to do whatever we want, without cost, without consequence. And if we deny that part of ourselves, if we deny that exploration of our sexual freedoms, we're denying what it is to be human. That's what our culture believes. That's maybe what you and I at some level believe. Well, listen, that, that premise, practically that premise fails. There's not a society in the world that has embraced totally free sexual exploitation of people and has survived to tell about it. Okay? And our day's coming in America, all right? You can't get the, the toothpaste back in the tube, okay? We have, we have gone beyond the line, and we're not going back. Okay? We just need to be sober about that. Our culture is eroding under that mentality. But more than that, more than just culturally, it's a, it's a direct defiance of the God who created us. Why would God place the parameters around sexuality that he has? Just to restrict us, just to make us miserable? No, we've been created in his image to reflect his character, his nature, his glory. God created you, whether you believe this or not, God created you with an outrageous dignity about you. You are not an object, you're a person. And a personal God made you to reflect him. Sexual perversion poisons and corrupts that good creation. It's a sin that turns us into objects rather than people. And that's why God is so hard on this issue right here. His wrath is reserved for such sin. Let's not make a mistake on it. But there's good news. We need some good news right now, okay? The good news comes in verse 7. Look at what verse 7 says. And in them, in these sins, you also once walked when you were living in them. Past tense. Jesus Christ has brought decisive change to the Colossian church. He didn't wait for them to clean their sexual purity up, to get your act together, to stop, stop, stop the bad stuff. Then God will accept you. Jesus died while we were yet sinners. In the middle of all our awful sin, Jesus looked upon us in love and gave himself for us to make us new. And therefore, Paul says, the outcome of that, you used to walk in these things. This used to be your defining way of life, but no longer. You used to live in these things, but no longer. You've died to this. And you've been made alive to God through Jesus Christ. The Colossian church did not sit under the, the wrath and judgment of God. Even though they had previously walked in these sins, that was not a disqualifying thing for them because they'd been made new by faith. And that's true for every last one of us. There's good news here. Um, Warren Weersby just passed away the other day, made a great statement on this. Weersby says, God formed us sin deforms us but Christ transforms us that's the process i'm going to say that again god forms us god creates us in his image with dignity sin deforms us sin treats god as secondary or worse sin makes me my own god it deforms the good image of god that he's given to me but ah but Christ transforms Christ gives new life. And so listen, if you are a Christian, you are no longer a slave to, imprisoned to sexual immorality. That doesn't mean the temptation's gone away, the desire's gone away, maybe it's still there, but listen, you are no longer imprisoned to that. Such were some of you, Paul says, but no longer. You don't walk that way anymore. You've been made new. You're dead to sin, you're alive to God. We've been changed. So Paul says live like it. Live like it's really true, that you're something new, you're something different. And now look at verse 8. He goes on. He says, now you also put them put all aside, those sins he just mentioned, but now he gives us another list. He says, anger, verse 8, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Now those don't seem to be related to the list we just looked at, but all of these sins are ways that we demean others, that we tear each other down. These are sins that don't merely exist in the heart, but they always spill out into our relationships. So Paul says, when he says anger, wrath, and malice, God has a good wrath, a righteous wrath. We do not. Human wrath is never good. Anger, wrath, and malice, what that means is we have a vicious heart toward other people. Even if you never speak it or act on it, you've got a vicious heart that you hate somebody perhaps, you root for someone to fail. I don't know if you've ever done that. you you get a secret joy and pleasure out of seeing other people fail. When you respond to people in a rage, you blow up. When you scream in order to intimidate someone, even your own children in your own home. When we act in a way that is angry and wrathful, Paul says we are out of accord with the righteousness of God. Then he goes on, he says slander. Now slander means you talk someone down, you gossip. It's a terrible problem for a lot of us, slander. Abusive speech could include profanity or insults or bullying language. Um, Jesus said, the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Very convicting verse. Jesus said, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. That means, Paul says here, that the issue for us in these sins is not, you need to watch your mouth. You need to put a rein on your mouth. Stop saying all that stuff, right? Okay, That's better than nothing. But that's not what Paul's content to do. That's not what Jesus wanted. The idea here is that we root these sins out of our hearts. The mouth won't be an issue if the sin is rooted out of the heart, right? Because the mouth simply follows what the heart contains. And so Paul's command, root out the hateful ways of thinking about and treating other people. Get it out of your heart so that it won't entertain your thoughts and come out of your mouth. And in verse 9, he says, don't lie to one another. Now, again, lie, we, know, we all know, you've known since you were a little kid that lying was wrong. Uh, a lot of times we just think lying's wrong just because it's wrong, period. And it is. But think about how, when, when God created us with a certain dignity, how lying corrupts that dignity, how lying destroys it, how lying breaks trust in relationships and treat others as less than. you're not worthy of the truth. And therefore, I'm going to hide the truth from you. It steals away dignity. We break trust with each other. We fall into relation, relational disrepair. Paul says, stop lying to each other. And specifically, when he says each other, he's talking about within the church, that we hold each other to even a higher standard when we're gathered together. Okay? Now, what is the foundation for all of this? We, I, I mentioned this at the front of the sermon It comes from verses 1 through 4. I encourage you to go back and read, maybe even memorize those first few verses of the chapter. But when Paul gives us this list, ending with lies, beginning with sexual immorality, he wants us, he paints the picture all the same way. Different manners of sin, yes, but in the end, here's the issue. Look at the middle of verse 9. This is so good. He says, "...since, because you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices." and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, who created her. This picture that Paul gives to us, it's of a new wardrobe. And Paul uses this elsewhere in his writings. That there is like, it's like the old self, our sin is an old garment, a dingy piece of clothing that we're meant to take off and lay aside, or, or to, to be more specific, to throw away, to burn, to get rid of. And in its place, we change into something that's nice and clean and new. We put off the old and we put on the new. Now, here's what I think is great about this. It's a, it's a dual reality. Two things are true at the same time. Paul is giving us a command relative to a statement of fact. Put off the old self, put on the new self. That is something, if you are a Christian, that's something that has already happened for you, to you. When you place your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you die to the old self. You die to sin and you are alive to righteousness. He makes you alive to God. And so there is a positional reality here of the old is gone, the new has come. That is a position that you stand in that you did not accomplish, that you can't earn. Christ has given that to us by grace. That's good news. But then there is an implication that comes from that. That's the command. Paul says, now, having been saved, he says, now, day by day, moment by moment, live this reality out in the normal, everyday stuff of life. Consciously put off the old and put on the new. Live in such a way that you are always reflecting the fundamental change that Jesus Christ has done for you. He says, put off the old self with its evil practices, right? That's how we define it. Put on the new self instead. Now, I shouldn't have to convince you of the fact that this sounds a whole lot easier than it really is. Easier said than done, right? You want to know why? Because when God saved you, when God put the old self to death and made you alive in Christ, Wonderful as that is, eternally significant as that is, God did not transform you into a thoughtless, choiceless robot. That now you can only choose good things and the bad stuff is no longer on the menu. Some of us wish that would have happened, right? But then God would remove choice from the equation. We'd have no will any longer. We'd have have no need to be sanctified and made more and more like Jesus, right? We might as well just go on to glory at that point. No, when God saves you, he puts you into an all-new battle. You've been given a new life. You've been granted a new heart, yes. But y'all, the stuff that used to be on the menu is still on the menu. It's still available to us. You can make the conscious choice to go back to the old way of life, right? We can do that. We still live in a darkened world that celebrates most of these behaviors. And we still possess what Paul calls elsewhere, he calls it the flesh. The flesh which is that old impulse to sin that even if we hate it and wish it were gone, it's still kicking, it's still fighting for a place in our lives. Satan is still at work in the world, okay? So if you came to the Lord thinking, hoping that all the old desires would just magically disappear, you probably found out pretty quickly that wasn't the case. And I hope that that didn't make you disillusioned, disenchanted. No, listen, this is the battle that we find ourselves in. And so Paul's term, listen, when Paul says evil practices, we recognize those are things that are still available to us. That's why he has to command us to put those things away. Right? But I want you to notice the power of the new self, y'all. In case that's a discouraging thought, because it may feel like for you that old picture of the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other, 50-50 kind of battling it out, whispering in our ears to try to drive our behavior, that's not the, that's not the reality for us. This is not a 50-50 tug of war. I'm not sure who's going to win. Flip a coin as to how my day's going to go, righteous or unrighteous. No, listen. Look at verse 10 again. Look at the power of the new self that we have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one, that's Jesus, who created us. What is the hope of rooting this kind of sin out of your life? It starts with us recognizing something foundational. You have been recreated. John 3, Jesus says, you are born again to a new way of life. We can't mistake reading new self in the Bible. We can't make the mistake of reading that phrase as improved self. And I think so often that's my temptation. I see new self and I'm simply thinking improved self. Y'all, you are not improved. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things are new. And so Paul says the the active, ongoing reality that we're now invited into, called into by Christ, is a renewal of that reality, a constant refreshment of of that reality day by day we come more and more to see him to love him in a truer and deeper way that's what true knowledge means it's not just that you know about christ but you know christ and you abide in christ i I mentioned this last week i want to repeat it i think it bears repeating we could say it every sunday that the christian life is not a daily exercise of you trying to be a better person Sometimes that's how it feels. Sometimes we feel like that's enough for us. The Christian life is not a daily exercise of you just trying to be a better person. The Christian life is a daily fixation on another person. Not what you see in the mirror, but Christ. That's what Paul has told us is the foundation of all this. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seek him, set your heart on him. And the deeper you come to know Jesus, the more you become like Jesus you see how Paul frames that in verse 10? There's a renewal into the image, into the likeness of the one who created us. And that makes logical sense, right? If if you fix your eyes on Jesus, if your heart is consumed with Jesus, sin, whatever the sin is, it becomes less palatable. That sin, whatever it is, it becomes less desirable. You've got no time to waste on that old stuff because you've been captured by a new affection. You've given your heart to someone else. You belong to Christ. And so listen, y'all, if if your approach, if my approach to the Christian life is wake up in the morning and say, okay, I've got to be less lustful today than I was yesterday. I've got to get that under control. I've got to be less angry. I've got to be less selfish. I've got to be less this or that, right? I've got to avoid the bad and start being better. Better. I've got to be less greedy. Whatever You fill in the blank, whatever it is. There is an absolute nobility to recognize sin and want it out of your life. That's a good thing. But if you wake up in the morning with that mentality, very likely you and I both, we're putting all of the weight and emphasis on our own self-effort, on our own discipline, on our own self-control in order to change the foundational desires of our heart. And I just don't think that's ever going to work. I don't think the Bible gives us that message at all. You, by your own discipline, cannot change the desires of your heart only to change your affection, to change the direction of your heart. Only then can your heart change in a way that influences behavior. If we put it in Paul's language, it's like this. Am I waking up every morning thinking, I've got to wash the old garment clean so that I can put it back on again? Am I just trying to improve upon yesterday and think that that's enough for me Paul says take off the old garment and put it away it's not coming back out of the closet in fact burn it it's dead put on the new the new self that is being renewed in the image of Christ that's the difference this is not improved version of Kyle or Jared or Bo this is a new man a new woman And so our desire for sin has to get swallowed up in a greater desire for something that is true and pure, for someone who delighted to make himself our Savior, our righteousness for us. It's a desire for Christ that is renewed and refreshed day by day. So listen, y'all, if God's ultimate goal was simply to make us better behaved people, he would not have sent Jesus for us. If God's goal was just for you to tighten it up and get better, then God could have tightened up the rules. He could have given us more rules to follow in hopes of putting tighter boundaries around us. God could have done that. Other religions seek to do that. Or God could have just piled on the threats, right? Put more and more pressure on us to guilt us into good behavior. If you don't change, here's what's coming. When God looked upon a world of sinners who deviate, who violate, who pervert his goodness... He said, I'll solve this once for all. I'll send my son that he might rescue us out of sin, make us alive to God, and now day by day conform us further and further into his image. God wants to make you like Jesus. He doesn't just want to make you better. And some, some of us need to change our mentality in that. Okay? So we don't put sin to death just because it's the right thing to do. We put sin to death because we have been made new. We've been transformed and are being transformed into a new image. Therefore, you and I, listen, we have, we don't always exhibit this, but we have a new love and a new joy and a new purpose. We have a new dignity. We have new values that we live by because we are Christ followers. And as we are renewed in him, we actually take on his character. What a privilege. That's a privilege. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 6, he asked the question, and he really asks it in a way that's meant to make us scoff, to laugh at the silliness of it all. He says, how can we who have died to sin live in it any longer? It's illogical. It's ridiculous when you say it out loud. If you've died to sin, you can't live in it any longer. You are no longer defined by it, driven by it. Elsewhere, Paul says, the time past is sufficient for you to have carried out the sins of your lower nature. Whatever we used to do, the time past is is sufficient. It's done. Close the door on that and move on. We're new. We're new. Why on the earth would we ever go back if we've tasted of the kindness of the Lord? Y'all, I know when we talk about issues of sin, it strikes a nerve. I know it. It does for me the same way it does for you. Um... God doesn't shy away in his word from calling a spade a spade. And we shouldn't either. Right? This is meant to touch nerves for us. And for some of us today, we need truly a very healthy conviction right here that even though we claim the name of Jesus and we're really maybe we're really trying very hard in many ways, but we have kept sin in the crockpot on warm perpetually in our lives. It's always there. And we don't want to let go of it. We don't want to put it to death. It's gotten easy to justify, easy to hide. And we kind of like having it around. And Paul won't allow us to do that. Jesus won't allow us to do that. We need conviction today for this. Now, others of us in this room, you may feel a very significant sense of guilt and regret because of your sin, specifically sin maybe that's in your past, things that you've done, things that have been done to you. And it's very hard for you, because of the piling on of that guilt, it's hard for you to even separate the old life from the new. You've been made new by faith in Christ, perhaps, but you don't feel it. It doesn't feel real because you were so consumed by what you were and what you used to do. And I want to encourage you as we close on that with verse 11. Verse 11, it almost seems kind of out of place right here but it's not. Listen to this. Paul has just told us there's, there's a renewal that we have in Christ who has recreated us. And then look at this, verse 11, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, but Christ is all and in all. Paul is referencing people groups right here. What does this have to do with my own personal integrity? He talks about circumcised Jews and uncircumcised Greeks, barbarians, Scythians, and slaves. You know what Paul's doing? He's going from the top of the ladder on down to the bottom. He's talking about how we esteem each other based on our upbringing, our nationality, our skin color, our morality, whatever it may be. And of course, at the top of that ladder, in, in Paul's estimation, it would be the Jews, the circumcised people, God's people, God's special people, the good moral followers of Yahweh right and then under them of course are the Greeks the uncircumcised Greeks the pagans they don't belong at the top of the ladder but you know what even the Greeks had people they looked down on the barbarians those who couldn't speak Greek and the barbarians looked down on the Scythians they were the worst kind of barbarian and even lower than that the Scythians looked down on the slaves right the worst of all the dregs of society okay you see what's happening here that we all have the temptation to build a ladder of merit, of worth, of value, that we then place other people on, and the goal is to get to the top. But you notice what happens here in Paul, in verse 11? He says these people that we esteem in certain ways, whether it's morality or, or gender, or, I mean, you, you, you make any distinction you want, Paul says, listen, in Christ, there is a renewal that has no distinction There is a renewal that has no distinction. That means every single person may come to the Lord Jesus to receive his grace exactly the same as the rest. That means that the people who think they're on the top of the ladder actually need to be brought down low, humbled, and shown that they cannot save themselves so that they might come to equal footing with the rest. And it shows us that the people on the bottom of the ladder are actually elevated, That the way they define themselves or the way that others define them is not who they are because in Christ they are made new, they are called righteous, and they are given the ability to follow a Savior just the same as the rest of us. So listen, here's, here's the point. Some of us grew up religious, you grew up in church, and as a result, you don't think of yourself as all that bad. And I'm one of those people. I like to really think of myself as pretty good. And yet in Christ, there is no distinction because Christ is all and is in all that I need to be humbled and convicted and shown my sin for what it really is. If I think I'm better because of my past, my upbringing or whatever else, then I'm going to keep sin hidden and I'm going to keep it readily accessible because I can justify doing it as long as I can stay at the top in your estimation. Jesus Christ has to bring me down low. But for some of us, listen, for some of us, you look into your past and there is ugliness there that you can can barely mention. That when it comes to mind, it wrecks you. Because you know what you were, what you've done. If you could go back and undo it, you would, but you can't. And yet, listen, there is no distinction, there is no ladder, there is no top to bottom or in between. Because Jesus Christ has come to us on the cross. There is a renewal that we are afforded now, that we are given as a free gift. And all of us are esteemed the same in the love and the glory and the righteousness and the grace of Christ. You are not your past. You are not what you've done. And by God's grace, you are not even, you don't have to be, even what you're doing now or what you're planning to do later. It can all be put to death by the grace of a God who loved us enough to die for us. We receive grace upon grace to destroy sin in our lives. Y'all, Jesus will not allow us to manage this stuff. If you're, just, if you're like me, you're just trying to cut the weeds short in hopes of maintaining control, the Lord will not allow it. He won't. Not because he's so hardened and crusty, it's because he loves us. If Jesus would love you enough to die for you when you were at your very worst, lost in your sin, then he has to also love you enough to refuse to let you stay there. Why would he let us stay what we were when he can make us new and renew us into his image? If Jesus Christ loves you that much, then the affection of our heart should be such that the old self is not something that we keep in the closet just in case. It's something that we delight to put to death in favor of this new life that he's been gracious to provide. Let's pray. Father, let us be honest in these moments that that we are frail and weak and broken. Help us to be honest. There's not one of us in this room, including me, Who's who's figured this puzzle out? That we have complete control and mastery over the flesh and the temptations, uh, both outside and inside. We are needy people. We are we are yet sinners. That. And if not for your grace, Lord, we don't have a chance. We will continue along the path that we've chosen for ourselves, the path that's most attractive, the path that's easiest to follow. Um, We need a renewal. We need to be changed uh, evermore into a new image. And so, Father God, will you grant us that grace this morning, the grace that we need in our hearts to look upon our sin and to hate it, to hate it, we know what it is. We know the consequences. We know, Lord, that it grieves your heart and it should grieve ours. And so, Lord, teach us evermore to look upon the, the base desires, the evil practices of this world, and, Lord, to, to despise those things in light of what we've been given, in light of who you are. Lord, show me the, 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 the insanity of living into the old self when I've been made new, when we've been given Christ. Lord, don't don't allow us to turn this into one more box on a checklist. We don't put on the new self just by gritting our teeth. We've got to seek you, Jesus. You're the one who saves us. You're the one who sanctifies us. You change us day by day. And so let it be for us that we push away the idea of improvement and we embrace the idea of newness. We need to be continually made new. Um, Father, um, make us give us hearts that reject hiding this all away to keep up appearances. We are the church, we are a family. Let us be honest enough, not just with you, but with each other, that we need help. And let us, tell, let us help each other in this. Um, give us boldness and courage and, and sympathy and empathy. Let us, let us do for each other uh, this, this wonderful hard work of, um, of calling uh, our brothers and sisters more and more to you. Um, we need this. And so, Father, let us get after it. Let us fix our eyes on Christ and move forward. In Jesus' name. Amen.